welcome you to The Raw Roast, where we have real conversation about faith and life over a good cup of coffee. Uh, as you're aware, we, uh, we just wrapped up a message series um, called Tough Questions, where we've surveyed the congregation, uh, asked for their toughest questions, and are doing our best to address those questions with biblical wisdom and insight. Uh, I'm really privileged to have on the, on the show today uh, Dr. David Clark, who was a professor at Bethel Seminary for, for many years. Um, I didn't get the privilege of having a class with you, but I've, I know I've, I've read a number of your books. Um, I know you've preached in many churches and have a heart for, for pastors and for pastoral ministry as well. And, and David, it's really good to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you. I did not realize that you somehow skated by without taking one of my classes. So this makes <laughs> me very suspicious of your education. But nevertheless, I'm really glad to be here, Tyler. <laughs> well, it's good to have you. And one of the questions that we received was uh, essentially the question, how should we think about hell from a biblical perspective? Now, I know that 30 minutes is is not going to be able to do justice to this question, and there's so many different angles that we can go. But maybe a, a good place to start is to address some popular misconceptions that people have of hell. What is maybe one popular misconception, or maybe a few that you would, that immediately come to mind? Great question, uh, Tucker. And I think there are a number of uh, misconceptions. Um, one might be that people look at what the Bible has to say about hell and really get hung up, <clears throat> excuse me, hung up on the literal language, uh, language that describes, you know, a hot furnace, uh, and uh, people think of hell with pictures of medieval art in the back of their minds. Um, I think it's helpful just to start off by saying that the Bible does speak about hell, uh, and the word Gehenna, which is in the New Testament used for hell, appears uh, 12 times. Actually, 11 of those are used by Jesus. Hmm. So if you got the impression that Jesus was all about love and Paul was all about hell, uh, that would be a bit of a misconception. Uh, but this idea uh, that Jesus uses is a word that is a picture language, and uh, it's very metaphorical, and it's intended by Jesus to describe a, uh, an experience that is not positive or good for the person who experiences it, but is nevertheless real. Uh, and so Gehenna is this word that comes from the Hebrew Gehinnom, which actually refers to the Valley of Hinnom, uh, an actual valley that happens to be right next to the Temple Mount, just to the east of the mm -hmm. Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if you go back in history, this was a place where ancient pagans would practice child sacrifice to the bull god Moloch. And in fact, there was a there are several um, Jewish kings who participated in that. And good king Josiah, who's one of the few kings that was noticed uh, noted as a good king, uh, was good because he put an end to that child practice. So you think of this place just east of downtown Jerusalem, you might mm -hmm. say, or just east of the Temple Mount, uh, where the temple was. And in the time of Jesus, this had become a dumping ground uh, for sewage and refuge and garbage and dead bodies. And it was just a horrific place. Uh, it was full of worms and magic, uh, ma uh, maggots as uh, things Maybe magic decayed. too. <laughs> Maybe magic too. That's not what I meant to say, but <laughs> worms and maggots uh, as, you know, the garbage decays and it would also burn. And so hmm. the idea was that 
uh, this sort of smoldering fire, you know, would, would just kind of continue forever as these fires would burn to destroy the garbage. And so the language of, you know, the worm does not die and the fire does not go out would picture for the people that Jesus is talking to this very vivid garbage dump. Hmm. which is a horrific, smelly, uh, evil, terrible place. And its history goes back to child sacrifice. Hmm. Uh, so this is the imagery. This is, this is sort of a metaphorical way of picturing the horror of being uh, you know, separated from God. Now, we shouldn't think of these things as literal, like hell is actually a furnace. Uh, what is hell literally? What is it explicitly? We can talk about that. But I think what we learn from this language is that it's a place of judgment, a place of destruction, uh, a place that's horrific, um, and the experience of hell would would have these kinds of characteristics. I think that's what Jesus is speaking about when uh, when he speaks of hell and uses this uh, this word Gehenna. Why do you think people are so resistant to the concept of judgment, and are people maybe as resistant to this concept as they might think? Yeah, that's a great question, and I do think it's one of the misconceptions of the Christian faith that God is really a primarily interested in judgment and that the church is judgmental. Uh, in our society, to be judgmental, of course, is like committing the original sin. It's just not not cool to be, you know, judgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that as Christians, we should look in the mirror and make sure that uh, the way in which we express our faith— uh, places the emphasis on the fact that we care for and love others and that any kind of judging, you know, is secondary or tertiary. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have a reputation for being judgmental as a church, and that certainly does not help the cause of Christ. I think human nature, by just the way we are built, resists accountability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really don't like to be held accountable for things that I do that are not right. Yeah. Uh, no one likes accountability. Accountability is difficult. Um, and so we would choose to avoid it if we could, even mm-hmm. though in the end, it is really a good thing to be held accountable in a loving fashion in such a way that my life can be redeemed and my actions can be resolved and I can build a better habit uh, for the future. But I, I do think that uh, the value and importance of, of divine judgment or righteous judgment comes clear when we're the victims of somebody else's evil behavior. Yeah. So the person who has been the victim of a telephone scam, for instance, and has lost you know tens of thousands of dollars to a scammer who is laughing uh, as they take your money to the bank, uh, or the person who's been victim victimized by a, a drunk driver who has mm. you know killed a family member, or somebody who's the victim of some kind of sexual assault uh, or whatever. I mean, you think about the fact that there are genuinely people in our world who suffer because others have committed horrific crimes and sins against them. Hmm. And for that sin not to be judged is itself a moral problem. Yeah. And I think we know that inherently. When we see people getting away with gross evil, we realize, wait a second, judgment is actually a good thing. I happen to know of two cases where child molesters uh, lived their entire lives without being held accountable and died in their 80s and 90s, one in his 80s, one in his 90s, uh, and was never held accountable for what he did to children. Hmm. 
that's evil. And one of the elements of the Christian teaching is that judgment belongs to the Lord. And in the end, in eternity, there will be righteous judgment for the person who escapes judgment in this world. And to mm. me, that is a, a very positive and helpful message that can be given to anyone who is the victim of gross evil. Mm. So when we think about judgment, many of us go immediately to, well, I don't like being held accountable. But if you back out, think of this from a more social level, of a, of a societal level or community level, we realize that people who break the covenants of community and commit gross sins against each other, they need to be held accountable. And for them not to be held accountable, that's a moral blot. Hmm. And consequently, God's righteous judgment it should be seen as a good thing, not as a problem thing. That's an interesting way of phrasing it, to actually see it as an encouraging, uh, that it can be an encouraging uh, thing, and especially for, um, I mean, it really is, the, you have to have that in order to have the gospel uh, as well as we see, you know, in the New Testament. And Well, I think I, you're exactly right, because the good news is that God takes care of the issue of, of justice. Yeah both from the perspective of holding accountable, but also from the perspective of grace, because I know that I too am a person who mm -hmm. has done what is evil yeah. uh, in the sight of God. I have hurt those around me. I have not told the truth in every instance and so on, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so God deals with this question of sin and its negative effects on others, uh, both from the perspective of uh, speaking to the need of the victim but also dealing with the need of the perpetrator. And in some cases, I'm the perpetrator. Yeah. Now, not a gross sin uh, that makes it clear, uh, for instance, like sexual assault or murder or drunk, you know, killing somebody while under the influence of alcohol or something like that. But nevertheless, all of us have sinned. And God mm. deals with both halves of that equation, both the perpetrator and the victim. Yeah. And that's good news, ultimately. And I think one of the things that uh, is symptomatic of immature thinking is to assume that in a relationship between you and me, that I'm entirely virtuous mm -hmm. and you are entirely evil. Yeah. And our current political environment only encourages us to think this yeah, way. I was thinking that. The that the guys on the other team are all bad and the guys on my yeah. team are all good. And what the biblical teaching instruct us very clearly is that the person on the other side is beloved of God and made in God's image and a treasure to the Lord and also has committed evil. Yeah. And similarly, I am beloved of God, but also I have committed evil. So this the line between good and evil is not the line between my political opponent and me. Yeah. That line between good and evil runs straight through your heart, even as it runs straight mm. through my heart. And when I realize that, then I realize that judgment is something that uh, is important. Uh, and actually, I'm subject to judgment myself. Yeah. Uh, and, and therefore, I need the gospel, the good news that God, by grace, uh, is willing to take my judgment mm. upon himself in the person of Jesus. So in many ways, it magnifies God's grace. It does. Uh, um, in that way. 
what are some maybe what are some biblical passages that you would direct us to that you feel like really illustrate this concept of of hell and judgment uh, in a in a clear way? You know, the fact that we saw Jesus using the word Gehenna the majority of times it appears in the New Testament, uh, you know, would lead us uh, to his uh, to his teachings and. I think what you see is that when Jesus raises this concept of hell, uh, he does it in the context of, of hypocrisy. Uh, he talks about those who are righteous and those who are, you know, not righteous, not in the sense that, uh, you know, some people never do what is sinful, mm-hmm. but primarily, you know, those who are on the left, on the right, those who are sheep and those who are goats, for instance, in Matthew 25, uh, depart from me, those who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, he says in Matthew 25, 41. And I think hmm. what's interesting about that, it's the context of God dividing those who are essentially rebellious against him versus uh, uh, in the other group, those who are still deserving of judgment, but have received uh, freely by faith the grace that he offers. Um, it, uh, one of the other things that's interesting in this text of sheep and goats um, is that it's an eternal fire. It's not something that's sort of temporary. And it seems to be prepared for the devil and his angels. It's like it's hmm. not really primarily intended for God's people, for, for the people that God has created, uh, but intended for the, for the devil. And, um, and it's always in the context, though, of this division between those who continue to rebel hypocritically against the Lord. And they can even be people who are, you know, like the Pharisees, religious in some yeah. sense. Um, so I, I, to me, that's a, a very important text. I think another important text where it, it comes out that Jesus talks about uh, hell is in Mark nine forty three, where the context is causing the little ones to stumble. And again, this speaks to the righteous judgment piece, hmm. which is that those who damage others, those who attack others, those who defraud others, uh, these are the people... Uh, where judgment comes into play. Now, the good news is that God can step in by grace if we humbly repent of our sins. But if we don't, that righteous judgment is uh, is a reality, hmm. and it seems to be an eternal uh, reality. And that's a text where in in Matthew or in Mark chapter nine, you know, uh, Jesus says this is a place where the worms that eat do not die, and the fire is not quenched. And he's you know he's pulling up this this imagery of yeah. that place Gehenna, just outside of uh, of Jerusalem. There, you know, if you I don't. It's, well, it's probably been more than a few years now, but uh, when Rob Bell's book came out, Love Wins, it you know kind of brought this idea of universalism down to the popular level. Um, how 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 would you address somebody that you know would say that you know ultimately in the end, hell's hell's is a temporary place, but God's love will win in the end. God's love will win in the end. Uh, it's just we need to clarify what that means and line up our uh, understanding of the ultimate victory of love uh, with the full biblical story and the full biblical picture. Uh, from my perspective, um, you know, one of the misconceptions, so you use that frame, what are some misconceptions? One of the misconceptions here is that God somehow delights or takes great satisfaction or joy uh, almost a fiendish joy, you might say, in throwing people into hell. Hmm. And, and I find that the, the way to make sense of the finality of judgment is that 
the gates of hell, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Now, this is a metaphor that comes from C.S. Lewis. And he is countering this notion that hell is like a prison, where God takes a person who doesn't want to be there, throws them into prison, slams a door and locks it from the outside. But if you think of the doors of hell being locked on the inside, what that's really saying is that hell is kind of a refuge for a person who insists on being a rebel to the end, hmm. who will not bow that knee to the Savior and the Creator, but rather insists on saying, I'm going to be in charge of my own life. And to me, that's the essence uh, of hell. I, I would point to 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which again is in the context of God's righteous judgment. And it says that people will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And so the essence of hell, if you wanted to say it in more literal language, is you don't get to be in God's presence. Hmm. And the reason is because you don't want to be in the presence of God and you choose not to be in the presence of God. You have made decisions that lead to a life that shuts God out. And so in the end, God says to this person, you know, thy will be done. Hmm. You choose not to be in the presence of God. I will allow you to do that. And in a way, that respects human choice in the nth to the nth degree. If hmm. this person insists, I'm not going to be in God's presence. God says, okay, I will not force you to do what you choose not to do, hmm. which is to be in, in my presence. Now that sounds, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, it, being in a furnace would be much worse. But if you think about the fact that God has, the triune God, the communal God has created us to be in love relationship with him, to find our satisfaction and joy in hmm. the presence of God in relationship with God, to be loved by God in spite of our flaws, and to love God in return. And that is the essence of joy. Mm. And for me to choose against that, to throw that away, and to insist on my own little prison of self-made misery, well, there is no joy in that. Mm. And yet it is an expression of God's love because God loves us enough to respect the choice that we make. Mm. So I, to me, love wins in the end, but not in the sense of, you know, this smallshy kind of, is that a word, smaltzy kind of word uh, or, or sense that, you know, everyone is, is going to be in God's presence whether they want to or not. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't seem to make, deal with the biblical data. I mean, you think of the Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, and um, the Second Thessalonians passage that you just read, and even text in Revelation, I, I, I guess I don't see how they address those particular texts in that system. Right, right. And, and that's, I think, the, the, the essence of the problem is that if we start with the biblical data and say we want to be we want to be true to the biblical data. Yeah, uh, you know, then we don't have certain options are not available to us. Yeah, uh, as as to how to think about the world, and so you know, acknowledging that God has inspired Scripture and this is uh, this is authoritative to us and for us, what we try to do is to make the best sense we can out of the teaching of the Scripture. Uh, and in a, in a way that is faithful to it, rather than to say, I'm going to make the best sense of the world, you know, from a common sense point of view, and then fit Bible verses into that. Yeah. Um, we, we start with the scripture and work out from there. And yet at the same time, I think that when we do that, a, a picture of God's moral universe hmm. 
emerges that actually does make better sense of our experience of human life, our experience of community, our experience of sin and hurt and loss uh, than a viewpoint that is typical of our secular society. Yeah. Are there any you know closing thoughts that you would have for our, you know our listeners who you know maybe they you know maybe they maybe they've experienced some traumatic um, event in their life where they they experienced injustice in an, in a particular way or they um, or maybe they you know themselves are they haven't responded in in um, repentance and, and trust in Christ. Are there any, you know, final words that you would have for either one of those listeners? Yeah, I think all of those categories of people uh, need to understand that the moral universe that God has created for us to live in is a universe in which the primary thing is love, it is relationship, it is truth, it is goodness, and the judgment is secondary, Uh, Too many times people think that the Christian church leads with punishment, leads with justice Mm -hmm. and judgment and hell and punishment. And uh, I would say that if you have a healthy family, uh, by uh, by way of example, that healthy family is going to be characterized first and foremost by the idea that the members of the family are loving towards each other, that, that they are for each other, that um, the essence of that family relationship is that I want what's good for you and what what is going to lead to your flourishing and mm-hmm. to your joy. And the judgment and the justice part comes in only when people act in such a way as to undermine that ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would say the reality is love, and the, the judgment is like a parasite on the reality. Hmm. We should lead with love, and judgment is necessary only to the degree that people act in ways that undermine that, that, yeah. that reality. So when the church comes across in our world as being judgmental, it's unfortunate because we're coming, that means we're sort of leading with the secondary issue, yeah. and we're missing the primary issue. Hmm. And, and I would hope that understanding things in that way would allow a person who has experienced maybe uh, judgmentalism in a wrong way yeah. or has experienced evil or whatever to understand that first and foremost, God is for you, that God wants you to flourish, that God loves you. And this whole notion of uh, hell or punishment or judgment is really reserved for those who resist God and insist on being successful rebels to the very end. Hmm. Whereas those who submit their uh, lives to God, who bend the knee to the Savior and who willingly respond in love to the to the message of love and grace that God gives us, to those people, uh, God actually resolves the issue of justice through the cross hmm. and brings not just forgiveness for what I've done against you, but also healing for what you have done against me. Hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about the cross. You know, when I sin against you, Tucker, you suffer harm and I suffer guilt. Hmm. And in traditional Christian teaching, we sometimes talk a lot about, well, the cross takes care of the guilt. But the cross also takes care of the the hurt Hmm. that you experience. And by the way, when I sin against you and hurt you, you do the return favor of sinning against me and you harm me. Yeah. And so both the sin against and the sinned against, the mm. one who perpetrates and the one who is victimized, 
uh, both of those are resolved by the grace and love of God, which is the primary point of this whole thing. Hmm. Sometimes we get uh, off track and we lead with the secondary issue, and I think we need to be just check ourselves on that point and get back to the main emphasis, which is God wants us to flourish. Hmm. He wants us to experience healing. He wants us to experience joy. And that comes through relationship with him. I think that's a great place to end. And um, I feel like we could go a whole nother hour on this topic of the implications of the gospel in our, in our lives. And I want to thank you for, for being on this show today. And this, this has been a fun conversation. Well, I, I, I'm I, glad I, that you can imagine a conversation about judgment being fun. Well, but I hope maybe it's, that's uh, not the right word. Revealing, it, yeah. and helpful, and and hope giving, really. Yeah. Uh, especially to those who have experienced being on the negative side yeah. of horrific sin by others, that God is doing something about that, and that's a good thing. Well, thank you, David. And I want to thank you for uh, listening. If you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to reach out. Uh, If you have any questions about Calvary Church, uh, we'd encourage you to visit calvarychurch.us. We have two services on Sunday at 9 and 1030 at both our Roseville and White Bear campuses. Uh, We're glad that you've chosen to join us today, and we look forward to having you again next week.